On today's show, I've got Sue Falzoni. Sue is the owner of Structure and Function Education and is an associate professor of athletic training at AT Steel University. She has an extensive background working in both professional sport and also as an educator, and she is the author of one of my favorite professional books called Bridging the Gap from Rehab to Performance. So it's a great pleasure of mine to speak to Sue today. If you're enjoying the episodes and you'd like to receive them as soon as they come out, then please subscribe. And don't forget to check us out on Instagram under Informed Performance. It is an absolute pleasure for me to welcome Sue Falzoni to this episode. Sue, thank you for humoring the idea of having a chat with me. Um, It's a rare privilege that you get to enjoy reading a book and then have a real conversation with the actual author themselves. So thank you for coming on. Oh, gosh, thank you so much for having me on. And thanks for those kind words. I really, really appreciate that. Um, Just to set the scene for the listeners, would you be able to just tell them your background and what you do? Yeah, for sure. I, uh, I'm a physical therapist, athletic trainer, and strength coach, um, and have functioned in all of those roles in one way or another. Um, I uh, went to physical therapy school um, at Damon College in Buffalo, New York, very, very long time ago. And then I did my graduate work at UNC Chapel Hill in sports medicine and uh, human movement. Um, and then worked for about 13 years for Athletes Performance, which is known as Exos. And um, Worked for the LA Dodgers for about six years and then um, went on from there, Did uh, was the head of athletic training and sport performance um, for the U.S. men's national team for, uh, for soccer or for football. And um, then uh, currently am a associate professor at A.T. Still University in the doctoral program and um, also currently own an education company called Structure and Function Education. That's quite, that's a hell of a CV you've got. And are you you still working with any professional teams at all? Um, I do some team consulting, um, but I definitely uh, still treat patients. I've got a concierge practice where um, I still have professional athletes and um, either travel with them or go to their homes and kind of treat them, uh, treat them as individuals. So I haven't um, worked with a, well, let's see, I guess it's been since January since I've done any consulting with any of the, of the teams, but, um, but yeah, definitely still consult and, and work with patients, uh, on a weekly basis. That's, um, that's very good. Are you, are you mostly working with baseball and soccer when it's athlete, when it's athletes or do you work with different athletes? Yeah, I definitely, right now my two clients are, uh, major league baseball and, um, the NFL. Oh, right, cool. So you get a good mixture. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of a mixture for sure. And I'm gonna we're gonna dive straight into it. Um, I had a heard a female physical therapy student recently say to me that she couldn't work in sport because she's a girl. Um, my first response was, "You have to look up Sue Falzoni." But <laughs> I'm I'm interested to hear your views on this statement, or perhaps if it is a wider issue. Um, were there any barriers for you when you initially started working in sport? Uh, you know, there were barriers, um, but honestly, I didn't think about them. And it breaks my heart when I hear young women say that, um, when they say things like that, like, oh, I can't, you know, work in professional sport because I'm a girl. Um, cause there's so many teams and so many organizations that absolutely will give you the opportunity. You know, they just want the best person. And, and I think like with the athletes, they don't, they don't, they certainly don't care. Um, they, they just want somebody who can help them perform better and, and to feel better. And so, you know, I would say, yeah, there were definitely some barriers, but, um, 
you know, I tend to, I, I, I tried to just focus on, on the opportunities that I was being given and, and being ready to execute upon those opportunities. And so, um, yeah, I never really kind of focused on those barriers. I, I, I'm sure they certainly were there and I think they still are there. Um, but there's plenty of organizations that'll give you an opportunity. And how would you advise a girl who, uh, you know, like the one I've mentioned, who and I'm sure she's not alone. How would you advise them on sort of, I guess, starting their career in sport and getting getting their foot in the door somewhere? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, internships are a great way to get an organization to have the opportunity to see who you are, what you're about, the kind of work you do, how you hold yourself as a professional. Um, and then, you know, internships are really just two, three or four month long interviews, really. Right. So um, it's just a great way for whether you're a male or female um, to to get an organization, if you want to get into professional sport, to get them to know you. And so um, there's a lot of great formal um, internship programs that that I know we have in our different leagues. And I'm, and I'm sure it's, um, you know, the same pretty much everywhere that if you can apply and get one of those internships, uh, that's usually a really, really great way to go. The other thing I always tell people is to get themselves to conferences where people are speaking in the league that they want to work at. So like for baseball, you know, there's a conference every year that most of the baseball athletic trainers will go to, you know, to make sure you get to that conference and you meet as many people as possible or, you know, same thing for American football or, or whatever, same thing for, um, for soccer. So I always tell people like get to those conferences where the people who are working in the league are that you want to be in and make it not about the name. Like the more people can get to know who you are as a human and who you are as a professional, when that opportunity comes up, they'll be like, Oh yeah, remember we met that person and and here's, here's his or her resume. Uh, but the more personal you can make it, the better, because you know, these people are getting inundated with resumes and people who want opportunities all the time. So if there's something you can do that makes you stand out as a human, um, and as a professional, that's, uh, that's usually my advice to people. And I guess from what it sounds like, that sounds like that applies to both genders. It's just your own personal approach and you get these opportunities on personal merit. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Because I think, you know, I know there's plenty of organizations who are apprehensive to hire a woman for whatever reason. And, and I'm sure that there's opportunities and things that I didn't get because I was a woman. Um, and you know, I just choose to not reflect on those. I don't choose to give those things the energy, um, and choose to focus more on the opportunities that I, I was allotted and, and, and was given and, and made sure I was prepared for those. Cause there, there are plenty of organizations that really just don't care what your gender are. They want the best person for the job. And so to try to focus on those positives and not to get too discouraged if for some reason um, you get the feeling or, you know, you don't get something and you think it's because of your gender. Yeah, we, you know, I'm not saying I'm not saying um, kind of let things happen that shouldn't happen. Right. But I, I tend to just focus on those opportunities that, that I have. And, and there's plenty of organizations that will give you that opportunity. Yeah. So people should still go for it. Yeah, go for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you're going to get rejections no matter what gender you are. I mean, you know, that it's working in professional sport is really difficult. You know, there's not that many teams, depending on what league you're in, you know, there's under 30 teams. So really there's only 60 jobs in the entire, you know, in the U S at least, maybe there's only 60 jobs in the entire league. So it's like, 
forget about even just your gender. Like those are just difficult jobs to get because a lot of times once when people get those jobs, they don't leave them very often. Um, so, you know, I think those jobs are difficult to get for both men and women, um, just cause there's not a lot of them. And so, you know, to really just focus on the things that you can control and being a great professional, being really good at what you do, having wonderful interpersonal skills, um, caring about the patient, which is what it's all about, and and just really focusing on those things, the right opportunity is going to come along um, no matter what gender you are. That's, um, that's really promising advice. So yeah, thank you for that insight. Sure. Um, I want to talk about your book, Bridging the Gap from Rehab to Performance. Um, I really enjoyed reading it. Um, I think you're you're able to convey really highly educational and informative information and sort of convey it in this conversational and, and never dumbed down way. It was it was kind of like reading a textbook, but in a way that you can read it for leisure. Um, oh, good. Thank you. Uh, you. I think one of the things you do a really good job of is you you discuss, I think, the kind of full toolkit of approaches and methods that coaches or therapists use to treat either injuries or perhaps enhanced performance. Um, but you, you managed to do this inclusive of discussing research or the current state of the research for that tool. Um, what I'm interested to know is how do you think therapists or coaches can strike a balance between um, being open-minded to what they use or what philosophies they apply, but still being critical from a scientific standpoint? Yeah, it's definitely a balance, right? And I think that um, people love to talk about this concept of of evidence-based medicine. And for some reason, evidence-based medicine became equated with research. And really, when you look at the foundational definition of evidence-based medicine, it's the best available research, which in some areas, that means we don't have much research at all. So it's the best available research, clinician experience, and patient values. And those three things are combined to create what's called evidence-based practice. And I don't know where along the line that sort of best available research portion of the concept of evidence-based medicine became larger than the other two. And I'll, you know, I, I would love when people want to have the, the argument on Twitter in 140 characters, people will say, well, you're valuing clinician experience more so than the literature. And I would argue that no, not at all. I think those three things are very equal when it comes to the practice of evidence-based medicine. Patient values and clinician experience are just as important as the best available research. And in some areas, you know, I work with really, um, high level individuals, there are not any randomized control trials on seven foot tall NBA players. So the only thing I can look to the best available evidence in that population might be a case study or a case series. So for me to, to feel like I always have to find a systematic review, a meta-analysis or some type of randomized controlled trials, depending on what I'm doing or who I'm working with, those are not super applicable to the patient population that I'm working with. So I think we have to, to kind of revisit the foundational definition of evidence-based medicine, best available research, and how we can best, you know, how we best utilize that patient values and what the patient believes is going to be a valuable treatment for them and clinician experience. And just recognize that all those three things is what makes up evidence-based medicine. I guess the, the science quite often is playing catch up with how we treat patients based on experience and judgment or uh, I guess occasionally intuition as well. 
Yeah, 100%. I mean, at the end of the day, research or practice drives research, and then research informs our practice. But that first part of, you know, the way we even have a research study is because people are doing it in the clinic, in the clinic or, or people are seeing some type of phenomenon and they say, hey, we want to study this. And so then they go to study it and then they, they go to, to look at it and then they take what they found and then they, you know, turn it back around and, and inform our practice. So I think that we have to recognize that clinical experience drives what's happening in the research and that the research then informs our practice. And so it's this big circle. Um, but, you know, our clinician experience and what we're seeing every day to day, you know, every single day as we're working with patients is super valuable. And in, in your book, you managed to include a, a real wealth of different tools or uh, philosophies for how you treat and enhance the, you know, the athletic body. Um when you come across, say, a new tool or a new idea that you haven't used before yourself, how how do you go about deciding whether you're going to implement it or not? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question because there's so much stuff out there um, now that it's almost overwhelming. I mean, especially with technology and and different things that are coming out, it can get really overwhelming, um, not only for a new clinician, but even for an older clinician who's been practicing for a really long period of time. And, and, you know, they're trying to kind of keep up with some of the new things that are coming out or that their patients, right. Patients are so informed now because of the internet, the patients are coming in and saying, Hey, I read about this on the internet. And if, you know, you haven't heard of it, you're like, Oh gosh, like, you know, I need to go look that up. So there's so many things that are just coming down our pipeline. And so you've got to be really critical when it comes to any type of a tool. And, and for me, I think sometimes people confuse their philosophy with the tool that they're using. So like for me, my philosophy is unwavering when it comes to my clients and my patients. My, my philosophy is to restore and maintain the homeostatic balance of my patient. So whether that's biochemically, biomechanically, biopsychosocially, bioneurally, whatever that means, like it it doesn't matter. And then the tool I use to express that philosophy um, is just whatever happens to be in my hand. So is that a needle? Is that um, my actual thumb? Is it um, a foam roller? Is it some type of um, kettlebell or a weight or whatever? Like the tool expresses my philosophy. And I think what happens sometimes is that People confuse their tools with their philosophy, or even they confuse their continuing education path with their philosophy. Now, some continuing education is a philosophy, but what I wanted to do in the book was just to kind of make the point that everything fits, right? Like whatever tool or whatever kind of school of thought you want to follow, it all fits within this model. Um, And it's just sort of a matter of, where do you want to put it and where do you want to put your stock into that, that tool? Um, but yeah, I'm pretty critical when it comes to new tools and flashy toys. I mean, I've got a concierge practice, which means I'm on the road. I don't have a facility. So if it doesn't fit into my little backpack, it doesn't go with me. Um, and so I'm pretty, for something to come out of my tool bag, what is going to replace it needs to be really, really good. So I'm pretty critical. (laughs) No, thank you. Um, Yeah. Early on in your book, um, you share your framework called the slide for how you work on the sort of continuum of an athlete being injured through to them performing at the highest level in their sport. Um, If it's not stealing too much from your book, can you share or describe this framework for the listeners and, um, and, and give a sneak peek to your model? Yeah, of course. Of course. It's, 
it's, you know, for me, I, I do, I call it, I call it a model or an organizational system because for me, it's really not a continuum. Like a continuum implies you have to pass one part of one part of it in order to move on to the next. And so what I really wanted to do was to present this sort of model where we as um, functional interventionists can say, okay, each part of this model is important. I might work on one part of this model on any given day. And we know darn well that there's people playing sport who maybe have not mastered one section of this model. And that's okay, right? Because they're athletes are great compensators. And so how do we sort of create this organizational system that says everything is important, but we do it in an organized fashion, right? Because to say everything's important is intangible. So for me, it's kind of breaks down into seven boxes. And so that first box is really about identifying the pain generator. So making sure that we know what tissue is the issue. And there is some evidence that says, okay, the tissue that is the issue doesn't matter. Um, but I would say, I would argue that it does matter, right? Like I think that if I've worked with a patient who has been misdiagnosed or we don't have the proper diagnosis, it makes our treatment interventions way more difficult. So I think a proper and accurate diagnosis uh, is really, really important up front. And that's where the pain generator comes into play. And that is, I kind of equate that to the source of people's pain. And then the motion segment is how do we frame that person's pain within the kinetic chain. And so the motion segment is really more about, okay, that's the cause of someone's pain. So pain generator and motion segment go hand in hand the way and can be equated to cause versus source. So the source of someone's pain and what's the cause of someone's pain. And we're always evaluating and treating both of those things in, in my opinion, in my model. And then as we kind of move down, we look at things like psychomotor control. So psychomotor control is really about um, the brain being able to connect to the body. And so if we've ever had a surgery or you work with someone who's post-op, like sometimes they're looking down at their leg and they're physically just trying as hard as they can to contract their quad. And it's a very mental engagement within what's supposed to be firing. And, and that's, there's a time and a place for that. But obviously we know those people have to be able to integrate that muscle contraction or, um, that, that, um, specific sort of isolated movement into a more integrated complex motor pattern where they're not necessarily thinking about individual muscles firing. They're just thinking about, um, executing the motor program. But for a period of time, psychomotor control is a really important thing to work on depending on, um, depending on what's going on. And for me, that's really about letting, um, prime movers be prime movers and letting stabilizers be stabilizers. You know, when a stabilizer has to become a prime mover, and a prime mover has to become a stabilizer, the body gets really angry. So if we kind of think about like TFL and glute med, if glute med is, is really the, the muscle where power is going to be developed and glute max really for extension and, and external rotation at the hip, um, and the TFL has to be, and the QL have to be able to stabilize the lumbopelvic hip complex in order for the glute muscles to produce power. Well, sometimes the TFL and, you know, becomes the prime mover and then, um, so that, you know, the stabilizer is now becoming a prime mover. And then we get IT band irritation. We get lateral knee pain. We get greater trochanteric bursitis. We get whatever, maybe whatever diagnosis you want to call it because the stabilizer has become the prime mover. And so there's a time and a place for making sure everything is sort of doing its job. Then as we kind of continue to move down uh, the organizational system, we look at somatosensory. And somatosensory for me is a really interesting 
part of the model because that's really where all of our nervous system stuff comes into play. How do we manipulate the visual system? How do we manipulate manipulate the vestibular system? Um, how do we manipulate balance and proprioception and all of those things and motor learning and how do people best, um, you know, have skill acquisition and motor control and different surfaces and sort of all of those things. That's, that's really where, um, uh, all of that kind of fun stuff lies within the somatosensory box. And then as we continue to move down, we have fundamental performance. And for me, that's about strength and power training. People need to be strong and they need to be able to express that strength in a period, a short period of time, which, you know, is known as power. And so how powerful can people be? And, and strength is a fundamental component of power. So for me, that's where we pick up heavy stuff. We put it back down, we do it again, and we try to do it with speed. And so we just develop fundamental strength and power in that box. And then how do people express power in fundamental athletic movement? And that's really where fundamental advancement comes into play. So that's where, okay, how do we take that power and that strength and express it in linear movement or multidirectional movement or jumping and landing? And then how do we teach people to go from any one of those movements to any other thing? So that's just really foundational athletic movement in that box. And then as we continue to move down into this final box of advanced performance, that's when it matters. Is someone a football player or are they a baseball player? Is someone a, a marathon runner? Um, what type of, what type of sport are they playing? And so that's when things get really sport specific. And, you know, people ask me a lot of times, how do you league hop, right? Like you've worked in major league baseball, you've worked in the NFL, you've worked in the NBA, you've worked in international soccer. Like, how do you, how do you league hop? And it's really because none of those things change until that very, very last box of advanced performance, where it's all about terminology and technical aspects of the sport. Everything else I talked about before that doesn't change, right? Every athlete needs linear movement. Every athlete needs multidirectional movement. Every athlete needs power. Every athlete needs everything else that I talked about. It's just that last piece where it gets very, very client specific at the end. And so really we kind of take this entire organizational system and, and kind of take the intangible of table to field and make things really, really tangible into really specific boxes. So it's a much more flexible lens for how you work with somebody rather than, you know, a pyramid where A tells you to then go on to B, which tells you to go on to C. It's, it's a lot more open-ended. It is. It's definitely more open-ended. And I think it helps too to like, from an in, uh, interprofessional relationship standpoint too, like there's plenty of people who I work with where, man, it's all about weight room stuff and creating strength and creating power. Uh, but maybe they don't understand some of the vestibular or balance stuff as well. And that's okay. They don't need to, right? Or maybe they don't have diagnosis in their um, skill set, and that's okay. We all don't need to be experts at it all. We just need to have friends who are experts at it all. So if someone feels really, really comfortable in the weight room, but they don't feel super comfortable diagnosing someone that has shoulder pain, no problem. You don't have to know how to do that. You just have to know who to refer in order to do that. So I think it also kind of presents a way for us to work interprofessionally together and to kind of say, okay, here's where my strengths are. Here's where maybe not my strengths are. And that I either need to go get further education or I need to make a friend in this area. And, and it's athlete centered. Yes. Yeah. Which is absolutely huge. Right. At the end of the day, that's what it's about is, is an athlete centered model. And um, while, while I've got your attention, what I, would, what I want to talk about is uh, dry needling. Um, it's obviously not a new tool, but I'm, I'm aware it's something that you're an educator for. Um, 
in the UK where I'm from, dry needling within physiotherapy practice is um, within the scope of practice, providing you've done a credible course. Um, now, now I'm in America, obviously, state by states, uh, each state has a different uh, scope of practice for whether it's included or not. Um, for the clinicians who are out there who, whether you know it's geographically, they haven't had exposure to it or they just haven't used it before, could you sum up? Um, what it is and perhaps justify why it could or should be used in practice. Yeah, the, um, you know, needling, it's, I do tend to call things needling now because there is, there's, you know, it's, it's a bit of a controversy depending on what state you're in and and, um, whatnot here in the U.S. Um, It's funny, I have done a, a lot of my training in the U.K. actually, so I am a member of the AACP, um, and have taken those accredited courses, which is which is great. Um, and here in the United States, it's a little bit different. And so really dry needling um, in the United States is kind of looked at differently than acupuncture. Um, but the way I kind of look at it is, is acupuncture, traditional acupuncture is sort of this broad term, right? It's like saying you're a physician. If someone tells you um, you're a physician, or they say, hey, I'm a physician, your immediate question is, what type of a physician are you? Are you um, an orthopedic surgeon? Are you an internal medicine doctor? Are you an OBGYN, right? Like there's all these things that sort of fall under the topic of being a physician and kind of same thing, like traditional acupuncture is this really, really broad term. And there's different things under traditional acupuncture. There's traditional Chinese medicine, there's auricular acupuncture, there's, um, uh, peripheral neuromodulation, there's, dry needling. So dry needling is like this one very specific thing under Western medical acupuncture. And it's one really, really tiny aspect of traditional acupuncture as a whole. And so dry needling is really, really rooted in Western medicine. Um, Even though we use the same tool, we use a fine filiform needle and, and we insert that into the body in order to create a healing response. And that healing response is really strong because we can create a healing response locally, segmentally, and systemically. So a lot of different things happen when we insert this fine filiform needle into somebody's body. And so dry needling, like I said, is really, really rooted in Western medicine. There's no discussion of of anything from an Eastern medicine standpoint, chi or meridians or those sorts of things. Those things are rooted more in Eastern medicine. Um, but in Western medicine, you know, as a, as a physical therapist, um, you know, who's gone to school for anywhere from four to seven years, depending on when you got licensed, we have that knowledge in anatomy and physiology and pathoanatomy, pathophysiology, safety, all of those sorts of things. And then, and then we take a class to sort of learn how to utilize or add this tool to our toolbox. And it can be a super powerful tool. If I'm in a situation where I can use it, I often will go to that tool um, because of the incredible local segmental and systemic things um, that, that can happen when we utilize that tool. But with great power comes great responsibility, right? So the first time we're being invasive in the body as, as a clinician. So we have to understand and respect that there are a lot of systemic things that, that can potentially go wrong if you're unfamiliar with your anatomy if you're inserting a needle at a wrong angle at a wrong depth, or if someone has a systemic reaction that you don't know how to deal with, um, all of those things come along with that skill of inserting a needle into somebody. So, you know, it's a super powerful tool, but it's definitely one that you want to have great education and great understanding and, and really have a respect for, for what the technique is. So obviously the, the science or the, the kind of clinical reasoning behind why you'd use it is, is universal regardless of which, 
state you live in? Is it more of a legislation um, issue as to why you can do it in one state but not another? It is for sure. So yeah, I mean, the body doesn't know what letters you have after your name, right? So it has no idea who is inserting the needle into the body. The physiology is the same, despite the letters after your name. Um, but yeah, it is definitely a legislative issue that some states, right? Every, every state in the U.S. has its own practice act. And, and those practice acts are very, very different from state to state, right down from, um, from direct access. And, and how can a patient even access us as a clinician? Do they have to get a referral from their physician? Um, can you see them for X amount of visits before you have to refer to a physician or, or, you know, here in Arizona, we have full direct access. I, unless there's some type of a red flag, I don't need a, a referral from a physician here in this state. So, um, even down to how a patient comes to us is totally different state to state. And then under, under that practice act, what we can and cannot do, can we manipulate? Can you only mobilize? Can you insert a needle? Can you not, um, can you, uh, order an x-ray? Can you not, right? Like there's so many different things that go under the practice act. So yeah, at the end of the day, dry needling is, is, um, state regulated. And so I always encourage people to read their state practice act to find out if needling is a skill that you're allowed to have, or, you know, allowed to have and allowed to practice in, in your state. And have you got any courses or events on this kind of area coming up in the pipeline? Yeah, we've got a bunch coming up. Um, if you go to structureandfunction.net, you'll find a whole bunch of different, um, a whole bunch of different foundational courses and advanced courses. We have a full seven course curriculum um, with advanced classes focusing on uh, more precarious areas like cervical thoracic and lumbopelvic hip. Um, we host a dissection class because I felt really passionate that people feel comfortable and know their anatomy. Um, which I know sounds silly because we think as physios or, or PTs that we automatically know our anatomy. But when you're starting to insert a needle into somebody's body, um, you really have to have an unbelievable understanding of what could possibly be on the other end of that needle tip. So we offer a dissection class um, where we used uh, where we use non-embalmed cadavers, so people really can get an idea of where the anatomy is, where that needle's going. So yeah, we have a full curriculum that you can find at structureandfunction.net. And have you got any more books um, that you're writing currently or have you got anything else that you're um, you're working towards? Oh, my goodness. You know, it's so funny. My um, uh, I just got a request to write a book chapter and I like I sent in my it's in one of my friend's books, which is going to be great. Um, and I, I'm still so traumatized from the first book that I'm. this is my first writing project <laughs> that I've taken on since the book because it literally, I was super traumatized for like a year and a half. And so I swore I would never write another book. But so I'm going to start with a chapter in somebody else's book and then we'll, we'll see, I guess I'm, I'm softening to the idea of a book or at least an update to this book already. Cause I, so what we're doing is we're putting, um, we're putting this book online. So the book for me was always a jumping point to further education. So online education and in-person education, I wanted it to be a living, breathing thing that would begin the discussion versus end the discussion. And so even as we're creating these courses and creating this online content, there's already things in the book as I'm going through it again right now, like, oh gosh, I would put this in a different chapter and I would do this here and I want to expand on this. So if anything, I kind of see maybe a, a version two or a new edition of this book sooner than later. Um, rather than a whole brand new book, but you never know. <laughs> you're very, you're very modest about the first book. It's a very good book. Thank you so much. Oh gosh, I really appreciate you saying that. It was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. That's for sure. 
And where can people find you online if they want to get more information from you? Other than the website, yeah. are you on Twitter or Instagram? Yep, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, so just do Falsoni if you look up. I wasn't very creative with my with my Twitter handles, and then Structure and Function also has um, has the same stuff as a company. So you can always kind of see what we're doing. We're doing some new and exciting things coming up soon here. Brilliant. And um, I think I think we're on the clock there. But Sue, thank you for for giving the sports medicine world the gift that is your book. Um, I definitely think it's a must read. But also, thank you for coming on the show. Um, it's been great to talk shop and steal some of the pearls of wisdom from you. Oh gosh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for for having me on and for wanting to chat. And uh, I'm sorry we're on a bit of a time crunch, but um, hopefully we can uh, chat again and um, people can reach out. And and I just really appreciate you wanting to have me on. Thank you. No, thank you. I'd like to thank Sue for coming on the show today. It was a great pleasure to listen to her philosophies on both performance and therapy. And I really can't recommend her book enough. As usual, everything mentioned on the show will be listed on the show notes at informperformance.com. And thank you very much for listening.